As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Odd Lots. I'm Tracy Alloway, executive editor of Bloomberg Markets. And I'm Luke Cowell, reporter at Bloomberg Markets. So, Tracy, uh, you remember that Taylor Swift album I borrowed off you? For the purposes of this conversation, I am going to say yes, I remember that you borrowed my Taylor Swift album. I've got some bad news. Uh, I, I kind of sold it to a friend for, for 20 bucks. But, 20 bucks? But don't worry, don't worry. I found somebody on Amazon who said that they'll let me buy it off them for 13 bucks. Wait a second. So you're going to make money off of my Taylor Swift album? Indeed. But I was also taking a pretty big risk here when you think about it. You know, it is a Taylor Swift album. You should assume that's going to go up in value. And, you know, what if nobody was willing to sell that for less than 20 bucks? I'd be in the red. I, I guess that's true. Uh, why are we actually talking about this? Well, because short selling is all the rage. And it's not just because of the Oscar winning movie, The Big Short. Hmm. In the markets, it's been the little guys. Andrew Left, John Hempton, who have really brought short selling back into the prime time. Right. So John Hempton is a name I definitely recognized. He's been in the headlines recently because of some of his work on Valiant, right? Yes, Valiant. Uh, both uh, both John and Andrew Left, they kind of discovered a a lot of accounting irregularities mm -hmm. or some things that were eyebrow raising at Valiant. And that kind of served as the launching pad for the discovery of all the things that have brought what was once Canada's most valuable publicly traded company to around its 30th most valuable. That's been an amazing story. So this giant pharmaceutical company, a darling of the public markets, and it's just been embattled lately against uh, short sellers and the wider investment community. Yeah. And with that in mind, I've, I've taken more of an interest in short selling, and I don't think there's anyone better to talk to learn more about it than Mark Cahotas, who was once called the world's greatest short seller. Tell me who, who Mark is. Well, Mark is now a chicken farmer. Hmm. We seem to we seem to really have a beat on that on Lod Lots. This is the, the farm related on farmers, podcast. We've had mule traders, a cow farmer, and now we have a chicken farmer. Yes, but in, a, in his previous life, Mark was the uh, a partner at Copper River. And they had many public, high-profile battles. Probably the most famous was with Overstock.com. And it's, it's amazing because Mark's experience is one, which we'll get him to detail, is one where even in a down market where things are getting killed, 
it's still incredibly tough to make a profit as a short seller. So his job as a short seller was basically to find companies where he saw potential weaknesses and he thought the stock was going to go down and bet on those companies. But you're telling me that even if he got his call right, it didn't always work perfectly. Yep, that's pretty much everyone in finance's worst nightmare, when your thesis is right and then you still lose money. All right, so today we're basically going to learn about the fraught life of the uh, American short seller. Yes, exactly. Let's do it. Well, you guys, you guys know what you're doing. That's why I make the big bucks. I'm a Bloomberg subscriber anyway, so I can get Oh, oh. Excellent. I I support the product. Thank you. You feed the uh, hungry journalists. Thank you. Exactly right. All right. So, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Luke has given a little bit of background, but I guess I'm kind of curious to go back to the beginning. How did you actually get into short selling? Well, I've always been interested and excited about the investment business when I was in high school. I used to play gold when gold was hot, made some money doing it. Then I completely blew myself up being long a fraud called data access systems. Hmm. And I lost myself plenty of money. I'm in my early 20s. Not now, Mark. You're not in your early 20s now, sir. No, back then. (laughs) And then back then, lost my friends some money. And I said to myself, if I'm going to be serious in this business, I better hone up my skills. So I worked hard to learn things, figure things out, and sort of a byproduct of that, I started looking at things through the what did I miss in the data access systems, which sort of sharpened my short prism, and that's where I got started. My first short I ever did was Valley Manufacturing, which made pinball machines. And a friend and I, back when I lived in Chicago, used to go around arcades and figure out the coin drop of these machines. And as video games and things like that were coming out, to basically put the pinball guys sort of out of business. Hmm. So that was my first successful short. I enjoyed it, loved it, thought it was fun. And you got to go to video arcades all day. Well, at night, I worked by day and then <laughs> messed around at night. And, you know, there's 24 hours in the day. So that's, that's, that's when I first got started in it. And then, you know, in the 80s, there were such great things as Cabbage Patch, Dolls, Transformers, the Coleco Atom. I mean, it's... There's a number of companies. There's a number of high-profile cases that you've been involved with over the years and probably the most intriguing and the most one that's received the most press over the years still does today is uh your battle against overstock.com which is you know an e- e-commerce discount brand uh, yeah. sale and so what jumped out at you at the beginning what were the red flags that said okay well this is one that i i need to be betting against yeah well it's it's interesting me someone who i think was really, really good at shorting stocks, is no longer in the business, a guy named Dave Shalley, and he was actually my neighbor when I lived in Marin. And he forwarded me once Patrick Burns' letter to shareholders about their quarter, about the year that they missed. Patrick Byrne being the Overstock CEO? Yeah, CEO of Overstock. And I read this, and I said, this is just completely insane and off the wall. What was uh, in it? It was kind of like... We had a really good first quarter of the basketball game. 
we were leading by a big score. We had a really good second quarter. Third quarter, we started giving it away, and the fourth quarter was an absolute disaster. Hmm. You know, it was this cheeky, weird rhetoric like that. And, and I think the year was just an absolute disaster. I said to my partner at the time, David Rocker, we need to look at this thing a little more. And we looked at it, and the numbers made no sense, and the prospects made no sense, and the accounting made, you know, everything was off the wall, and we initiated a short position. For the benefit of our listeners, tell us exactly how a short position works. A short position is essentially selling something you don't own, uh, looking to profit as it goes down. Mm -hmm. Imagine if you're in the cow business and you think the price of cows are going to go down. You not only sell your cows that you own, I go to Luke's cattle farm and say, Luke, can I borrow your cows? Right. And he says, sure, you can borrow my cows as long as you promise to pay them back and give me a small amount of interest. And we say, fine, because a cow is a cow. It doesn't really matter, right? Luke doesn't care. He just wants his cows back. Right. So I go and sell Luke's cows in the market under the theory that I think I'll be able to buy back these cows later at a lower price. Price of cows declines, I buy them back, deliver Luke back his cows, and I make the difference. If I mm-hmm. sold his cows at 200 and bought them back at 100 I made $100 per cow. Mm-hmm. If I'm wrong and the price of cows goes from 200 to 300 I buy Luke's cows back if I want to and lose $100 per head and still return Luke back his cows. So there's two ways that a short trade can really go wrong for you. The obvious one being that if the value of cows or the stock Mm -hmm. goes up, and the other one Mm -hmm. being if you can't get those cows back to return to their original owner, right? That's true. But there's always places to find cows. (laughs) And sometimes you can go to Mexico to find the cows or Southern California or Canada, God forbid, (laughs) or even you need to ship cows in from Australia, which will cost you more, which means your borrow rate goes up. I mean, it's a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous uh, part of the business. But for the people who have a genetic defect, it's, it's fascinating. So you decided to take the short position against Overstock. Tell us what happened next. Decided to take the short position against Overstock. Uh, Thought the stock was going to go down and go down a lot. But the stock decided to go up, and it went up and up and up. And Patrick Byrne is a colorful figure, to say the least. And David Rocker is somewhat feisty. And those two didn't exactly see eye to eye. These are these are very big understatements for for anyone who yeah, wants I'm, to go I'm, back I'm, and follow I'm, the I'm case. I'm trying to be politically correct. I'll, I'll, it'll get steamy here a little later. <laughs> and then David decided against my advice to go to a lunch with Byrne and sort of jump Byrne. And then it became sort of a free for all. Um, can we just explain what went wrong with the overstock short? Nothing nothing per se went wrong with the overstock short. Uh, I think at the end of the day, we ended up making money. I think the stock collapsed. 
I think at the time it went from 30 to 80 in a, on a squeeze and then 80 to maybe 12 mm-hmm. or 10. But during the big uh, Sith Lord short squeeze lawsuit uh, routine, it became, you know, what I would call a brain drain or a huge uh, and bad use of our institutional time. And a short squeeze, a short squeeze is that cow situation we discussed where you have a bunch of people who've shorted the stocks and they need to get stocks back in order to cover that short position. Yeah, part of it was that, and part of it was Patrick Burns' friends and institutions thought it was going to be friendly and fun to uh, squeeze things and, and buy the stock up. I know Glenn Krevlin and his fund squeezed us. I know a bunch of, you know, Tiger Cubs squeezed us. I know this from the lawsuit and the depositions. It's just, you know, people like to play games and push stocks higher. And I, you know, I find that kind of behavior unsavory. You've mentioned, I've read you say that, you know, this public battle turned out to work to your detriment. And, you you know, yet given the weight of the things against you as a short seller, all the money and organization is kind of stacked on the other side. On some cases, you need regulators to really step in for your desired end to happen. So how and where do you draw the line in terms of how forcefully you speak out against uh, a company or a person? And I know you, you don't pull many punches. So how do you do that yourself? Well, that's, that, that's an excellent question. In terms of the overstock, you know, controversy, you know, then morphed into a uh, naked short thing, a short and distort thing, a lawsuit, a Sith Lord battle, a whole, as I would say, just a complete and utter cluster of a disaster, you know, over a company that was extraordinarily overvalued. Um business model was in bad shape and it it just turned into something completely other than what the fundamentals were about the business it became the focus of everybody everything everyone and it you know it 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 sadly just turned into a sideshow i mean the company subsequently their business collapsed the stock collapsed everything fell apart but it became more about the messenger or messengers and not the message. Subsequently, you know, Byrne sued the prime brokers on this naked shorting thing, which was which is the proper target, and I applauded him for that. And, you know, Byrne and I are now peaceful these days. So, Mark, did your experience with Overstock... Uh, deter you from short selling? What happened after that? Well, let's see. After Overstock, you know, um, they sued us, we sued them. We settled for a a very small sum given what it would have cost to go to the trial. Initially, they sued us for a billion dollars. Wow. Um, and then they wanted to sell it for a couple hundred million, then a hundred million, then fifty million, blah blah blah. We settled it for five. It would have cost us about eight to finish this thing to trial. And at the end of the day, David Rocker is a witness and Patrick Byrne is a witness. 
I couldn't handicap that and just want it out of the whole mess. So it's something, it's a good thing to put behind you. It didn't, it, it, it doesn't deter me. You know, you learn things as you get older and as you grow up. So you've, you've mentioned some of, the, some of the kind of crazy things that have happened on the other side. How about on your side? Because the breadth of skills required to be a short seller seems kind of vast. And you see that in the big short where you have Burry pouring over spreadsheets and then you have you know, Mark Baum and his people going through backyards in Miami. So what are some of the craziest things you've done as background research for a, for a company you're considering shorting? Crazy things I've done. I mean, I've been in a fair share of dumpsters in my day. I Literal dumpsters. Real dumpsters, you know, where people throw away uh, hard drive components. Uh, Dave Shelley and I were once in Las Vegas uh, scouting out Nautilus, which used to make, you know, exercise machines. I think still think they make exercise machines. They also made inflatable beds. Hmm. And the company was making claims about how many beds they were shipping, and him and I thought they were full of crap. So we hung out at a, in, at a Vegas distribution center, and when everyone went home, we went through the dumpster to count, you know, returns and return boxes, and we found brand new stuff in there. And we hung out there long enough to wait for a truck to come by, I think, the next day. And we followed the truck, and we asked him how much business or how many loads he pulls or delivers out of there. And we were doing the math. He said he did two loads three times a week, something like that. We were doing the math, and we came to the conclusion that the company was overstating what they were doing by a factor of three. And, you know, we were short the stock, and we shorted a whole lot more, and the thing, like, blew to smithereens. But, you know, it's, it's anything... When you short stocks or you are interested in it, it's again, it's not for the faint of heart. And I always say, do not try this at home. But you sort of look at things through a different prism. You say, this just doesn't make sense. Hmm. You know, I was in Calgary last summer when everyone said, including some chucklehead developers, you know, that everything is great. But I was, as I was driving by at dusk at night and first thing in the morning, you know, I don't, I don't lead normal hours or, again, think normally. I went by all these condos and maybe a quarter to a third of the lights were on. And in popular times when people are waking up to go to work or at home after work, you know, you expect to see buildings lit. When you go by New York or Toronto in the morning and night, people are in these places. But these newer high-rises in Calgary were just dead-ass empty or a quarter to a third full. So you actually did the legwork and went out and tried to substantiate some of the claims that developers and companies are making. Exactly. I... You know, if I'm going to cock it, I'm going to throw it. I mean, I'm not someone who hangs out in the ivory tower and looks at <laughs> charts. I am a hands-on, in-the-trenches, throw-the-grenade guy. I know short sellers, as you were alluding to earlier, tend to get a bad rap for various uh-huh. reasons. Mm-hmm. Do you think that sometimes they provide 
a social service to the market, or at least an antidote to the sell-side research that we tend to see, which can verge on cheerleading sometimes? Yeah, big time. I mean, I think I think shorts should be respected. I think they should be admired. Again, for the average person, I sure wouldn't try this at home. But but you should always know, Joe Sixpack or a professional investor should always know, respect, and be comfortable with the other side of a story. Mm-hmm. Right? If I have a story on Valiant or Concordia or Home Cap or Tempur-Pedic, what have you, right? I'm not just making stuff up because I have real money, my money on the line. And if I'm saying this is the point of view, here's my point of view, here's the pitch, come hit it. You know, the the anti to that should not be you're a bad guy, we want to destroy you, we hope you die, Mm -hmm. we want you to go to jail, we're going to report you to the government. No, you know what? Everyone's entitled to free speech. And I always say free speech is free speech. It's just not free speech if you're bullish. Hmm. You know, there should be a public discourse and discussion of what goes on, both good and bad. So you... somehow this, this whole market-rigged, always-has-to-go-up entitlement game has been you have to shut up, destroy, mock, jail, indict, skeptics and i think it's just terribly wrong so at the I beginning mean, of the state that statement you mentioned a few companies i believe home capital you still uh, have a, have a short position against but a, a few others you know valiant sinoforest nortel these are all canadian names and to bring yeah. it back home to me it seems like we're punching above our weight in this area that we might not necessarily want to be do you have any theory or any explanation for why canada seems to be you know have some shortcomings in that area Luke's our token Canadian, and he always manages to bring it back to his home country. Well, well, here's, here's the weird thing about it. I go back to shorting Canadian stocks, and the Canadians, they're very nice people, but when you short Thank a Canadian you. company, it's like calling someone's wife fat <laughs> or their kids ugly. They take it beyond personal. And, and if the Canadians didn't know the word short squeeze... They wouldn't belong anything. <laughs> I mean, everything is short squeeze, Amaya Gaming, short squeeze, Home Cap, short squeeze. Everything's a short squeeze. But at the end of the day, you've got to look at the facts. And, and I think you're right, Luke. It's, it's the second things get criticized up there, it's a concept that people think that their nationality is getting challenged. When it's not, it's just the way it is. And and some of these great Canadian companies, I mean, don't just stop at Sino Forest or Nortel. You can go to Newbridge Network. You can go to Briax. You can go to Dome Petroleum. You, you can go on and on and on and on. And there's, again, there's plenty of rot in the good old U.S. of A. Mark, so you've clearly had a colorful short-selling career. Luke was telling me that your home life is equally colorful uh, and that you live on a farm. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I own a farm. It's not like I'm, it's not like uh, it's Green Acres here. We have a horse boarding facility. I have probably 500 chickens that I sell 
eggs in San Francisco, too, and I barter with. I probably have 200 fruit trees. I'm in sort of that business. I have a disabled son I raise and take care of him. He's all of 29. I screw around with these various market activities. I have some rock and roll friends. I hang out with them, though. Yeah, I lead, I lead more than a colorful existence. That's for sure. All right, Mark. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, Luke, you want to talk about this HCG a bit? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I don't think cont- I barely can anymore. Oh. So the uh, oh. studio people are nearly dragging us out here. But, Mark, thank you so, so much. This was a heck of a lot of fun. Perfect. Bye. All right, Luke. Well, I, I think we might have just earned our first ever explicit warning uh, for an Odd Lots podcast. But I did think it was a really valuable conversation to have because as we were discussing, too often short sellers are painted as the sort of evil villains of the financial system, especially after the crisis of 2008. And sometimes people forget that they actually provide a good amount of analysis and research that's valuable. It's valuable to have the other side of a bull market story. Moreover, as Mark alluded to and mentioned, like he said it takes a genetic defect to do this. And it mm. you're swimming against the stream. It is tough and it is a at times, I'm sure, a lonely existence. Not a lot of people are out there rooting for short sellers to succeed. It means that you know your 401k is going down, probably mm-hmm. if they're always right. And it's it's not something people are inclined to ever root for. Right, they don't want to hear it. Exactly. So I do also like the idea of uh, this short seller with a Bloomberg terminal on his chicken farm in California. I like that image. Uh, we, yeah, we've really cornered the market on, on farms here. <laughs> All right. On that note, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us this week. I'm Tracy Alloway, executive editor of Bloomberg Markets. You can follow me at Tracy Alloway on Twitter. And I'm Luke Kawa, reporter at Bloomberg Markets. You can follow me on Twitter at LJ Kawa. And also our guest, Mark Cahotas, is available on Twitter at Alder Lane Eggs. Thanks so much. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.